One of the things that all of us in this room today, this morning, share, I'm sure, is a moment or an event uh, in our lives that we can all remember when everything seemed to completely change, when the foundations seemed to just give way from beneath us, and when we struggled to comprehend, let alone take in what was going on, the, when all sense of certainty just seemed to evaporate. It could be a tragedy in our own lives, something that's happened to us personally that we just cannot even to this day get over. Or it might be something that we saw happen to a friend or to a relative, or it might be an event that we watched from a distance that has left a deep scar on our consciences. For me, and no doubt for many of us here today, one of those really unspeakably awful events that I'll never forget was watching live on TV the events of 9-11. It was a week before I was supposed to be flying off to do a gap year teaching uh, English to young students in France, and I was already feeling quite apprehensive uh, about going, but it was just one of those moments watching it on TV where you just felt that all sense of certainty, where all the the, the certainties that we have in life just seemed to disappear, where the ground seemed to just shift uh, from beneath us. And I remember sitting watching it uh, one after that afternoon uh, in the kitchen with my mum and the TV in the background, and it cut away uh, from what was on the TV, and it cut to the rolling 24-hour news channels, and it was impossible to take in the enormity of what seemed to be going on in front of our very eyes. And I just remember being absolutely speechless and gripped by this sense of fear. And fear, I think, because there are no words at times like this to capture the enormity of what is going on and the horror of what you see happening uh, in front of you. And then mixed in to all of that, this almost overwhelming mixture of emotions um, that anyone would have felt was this sense of guilt that it was somehow wrong, that it was morbid to be watching this on TV as people were throwing themselves out of office windows in a bid to try and escape the inferno that was burning in these twin towers in New York that day. The collapsing of the world's two great symbols of economic and corporate might and the mass extinguishing of life that went with it has marked itself on my consciousness like no other event that I can ever think of. But I think it's important that we remember that tragedy comes in all shapes and sizes. And whilst the horror of something like 9-11 played out in front of the world's media and people were gripped all over the world watching this, the private tragedies that many of us have and carry silently in our lives day by day are just as traumatic, of course. How do we deal with them? How do we make sense of them? In fact, can we make sense of them? We often come away from these things with more questions than answers. There's shock and there's sorrow and there's helplessness and there's anger and all of these are really potent emotions and we cry out at injustice and we weep in pain and we tremble with apprehension. And why do we do all of this? We do it because we're presented with this unsettling reminder that we do not control our destinies. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus seizes on two tragedies that would have been major talking points among those who witnessed or heard about them in his day. One was an instance of state-sanctioned terror as Herod, perhaps fearing a riot, ordered his troops to slaughter people on a pilgrimage from Galilee. These people were guilty of nothing more than offering a sacrifice in the temple. 
And the other event we read about this morning was a tragic accident, the collapse of the Tower of Siloam in the south of Jerusalem. Both of these tragedies saw people killed with little warning and for no apparent reason. Occasionally at times like these, we've all heard it, we will hear various people ask, are these types of events to be seen as a form of divine punishment? Is this God's way of dealing with sin? Well, Jesus deals with this issue head on, and he does so emphatically. In verse 2, we read, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus is clear here that the victims did nothing wrong to cause their demise. Of course we know that sin has consequences. The Bible teaches us that. But that does not mean that every apparent act of destruction that we see happening in the lives of people all over the world is necessarily a result of sin. We remember the story in John's gospel of Jesus coming across the man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus' point is clear. The assumption that things or events are a result of sin is not one for us to be getting into. What is interesting in this morning's gospel reading is that in both of these incidents of various tragedies, where tragedy results not as a direct result of sin in the lives of those who perished, but from a brutal dictator on one hand or from this freakish accident on the other hand, Jesus very quickly redirects the focus from knee-jerk reactions about talking about sin and he puts the focus right back onto the lives of the people who are asking the questions. By saying, in response to both events, unless you repent, you too will all perish, Jesus is telling the Jews, his own people, don't forget, something they would not have appreciated him pointing out, particularly when they were expecting Jesus to side with them about the slaughter of the Galileans. Jesus doesn't comment on the atrocity of people killed as they were making a sacrifice to the God of Israel. Instead, what he does say is he tells the multitudes that they all need to repent or they will all perish. And what he's saying to them and what he's saying to us today is that if we get caught up in questions about judging other people for what happens to them in life, we are missing the point, and we are asking the wrong questions. Because in the end, Jesus tells us, it's not the why of death that matters, it's the what state is your life in at the point of death that's the real question. What Jesus is emphasizing here is that life's fragility and the unknown and the unexpected nature of death, all of this provides an urgent reminder of the need for everyone to be right with God and to be ready for whatever life throws at us. It's a plea for us to be ready. It's a plea for us to be prepared. And he's saying that this means changing direction, 
following a different path from the path that we're on. It means following a path that will ultimately lead to rescue and salvation, whatever might befall us in this life. Jesus goes on then in this morning's gospel reading to illustrate his message, as is so often his way in a parable. And this time it's the parable of the barren fig tree. He tells the story of the man who had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and how he went looking for fruit on the tree one day, but he didn't find any. The man goes to the gardener and says, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit in this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? And the gardener replies, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The fig tree in Jesus' story represents us, the people of the world. Because just as the whole purpose or the whole point of the fig tree is to be healthy and to be vibrant and to be alive and therefore producing fruit, that's, Jesus tells us, what we were created for too. But this particular fig tree is lifeless. It is decaying, it's rotting, it is dying. So the owner of the fig tree, the one who looks for fruit on it, represents God the Father, who has created us, his children, and wants to give life in all its abundance to us. Not finding any fruit on the tree, the tree's owner, God the Father, puts in place a plan that involves a gardener fertilizing the tree and digging around it, seeking to inject some sort of life into this decaying tree. So the gardener in this morning's parable clearly represents Jesus, who is sent to earth, to God's people, in order to turn things around and to give the tree, that is to give us life as God intended it, to give us more time to come to a state of life. The gardener is sent to inject life and health into the tree. And the key thing is this. If the tree responds to the gardener's efforts, the tree will thrive. If the tree doesn't respond to the gardener's efforts, the tree will die. It's a portrayal of our relationship with Jesus and its consequences. And what's really interesting, I think, about this parable is that Jesus does not make this point, the moral of the story, if you like, at the end of the parable of the barren fig tree. And why does he not do that at the end? He doesn't have to do it at the end because he's already made his point before the parable even began when he said, repent or perish. Turn away from the things in life that are choking the life out of you, he's telling us. Turn away from the things that lead to staleness and lifelessness. Turn away from the things that are causing you not to fulfill your God-given potential and turn away from this path of destruction that you are on. The word repentance. This word repentance is a loaded term, and it's a term that can be off-putting for lots of people. But the Greek origin of the word repentance is simply change. And it was originally used to mean a change of direction or a change of mind or a change of heart about something. And there is nothing doom and gloom about change. Because the whole message of this chapter in Luke's gospel, just as the whole message of the Bible as a whole, 
It's about turning away, but turning away from a path of stillness, of lifelessness, of purposelessness, of emptiness, of destruction, and instead turning away to the path of Jesus, this path that leads to a life of abundance and life in all its fullness. As Jesus put it in chapter 3, uh, verse 8 of Luke's gospel, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So repent, change, choose a new path, a new direction, and a new mindset. It's actually an incredibly positive message, and it is as far removed as mo- from morbid doom and gloom as you could ever imagine. One of the really important points, in fact, I would argue the central point in this morning's gospel reading, is that Jesus' message is steeped in love and a concern that we should not perish. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jesus, in his own words, puts it like this in Mark 1, Mark 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And that's what it's all about. Repentance is all about the great prize that is on offer. Because Jesus is telling us here that if by turning away from the path of destruction and by following instead his way, we can be inheritors of the kingdom of God. So what then does the kingdom of God look like? This is the very question that Jesus goes on to address in the central verse in today's chapter, verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like, he asks, and to what should I compare it? And he says it's like a growing mustard seed and it's like yeast. But once again, actually, I think the answer to the question comes before the question is even asked. And in this case, I think we get an insight into the kingdom of God in the story that Luke tells us in verses 10 to 17 of the chapter we read this morning. Luke tells us about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, breaking all the rules, breaking all the protocols set in place by the religious leaders of the day, healing this woman who was crippled by a spirit for 18 long years. She was bent double, we're told. She was clearly in a lot of pain. I find this story really interesting. And I find it really interesting that Jesus, we're told that Jesus saw her, not she saw Jesus. Because I think it's a reminder that where there is pain, Jesus sees pain and Jesus wants to act. He calls her forward and the key thing is she responds. He says to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He puts his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and she praised God. What Jesus has done by healing the woman just before asking what is the kingdom of God like is precisely to give us a glimpse of the kingdom of God in action. For the kingdom of God is a place of healing, a place of freedom, a place of release, and a place of life. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 10, you might remember from a few weeks ago that Jesus told the 72 that he sent out a mission When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those there who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And the great news is that the kingdom of God is open to everyone. As we read in verse 29, 
People will come from east and west and north and south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus opens the door to the kingdom and he urges us to enter through the door. But he also warns us in this morning's passage that not everyone will make it. The door, we're told, is narrow. And the point of the narrow door is that it's going to take energy and it's going to take commitment and it's going to take real dedication to get in. We've got to choose to enter. And the reality is, we're told that one day the door will be shut and there will be no more opportunities. And nobody knows when that day will come. So the point is that we have to be ready. So Jesus' invitation and his plea, in fact, is for us to follow his lead, to turn away from the path of perishment and to follow him instead to the kingdom of God, where we can experience healing, freedom, fullness of life. So the message of Luke 13, repent or perish, shouldn't be seen as some form of judgmental dogma. On the contrary, this is a message of hope, it is a message of joy, it is a message of the promise of a better way, because no one wants us to be on the path to the kingdom of God more than Jesus himself. And that's why at the end of the chapter, Jesus says in a tone of real sadness that he longed to gather the children of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet, he says in sadness, they were not willing. Why this picture of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings? Well, it's because what does a hen do when a predatory fox, and there's a predatory fox mentioned in today's passage, what does a hen do when a predatory fox threatens to kill her chicks? The hen will lay down her life to save her chicks. This is the message of salvation. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' destiny to die for us on the cross at Calvary. So what Jesus is saying in the various stories and the various images that make up Luke chapter 13 is that if we change direction and if we follow him, we will be protected and we will inherit life in ways that we've never experienced until that point. All we have to be is willing. And so this morning, as we come forward to God's table for this sacred meal of Holy Communion in a few moments, to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us and all that he has done for us, this is an opportunity in response to this morning's gospel message for us to affirm whether it be for the first time or the 50th time or the 100th time or whatever, this is an opportunity for us to say we are willing, that we choose the path of life, that we want to turn away from anything in our lives that is preventing us from experiencing the life that is promised to us. It is an opportunity for us to give thanks and praise that, as the prayer book puts it, when we were still far off, God met us in his Son, opened the gate of glory, and brought us home. And it's for that very reason that whatever tragedy might befall us in this life, whatever comes along and pulls the rug under us, 
Whatever happens when we feel the foundations of life crumbling beneath us, whatever tragedies and traumas we may have to confront in life, we have the assurance of something bigger, brighter, better, more hopeful to look forward to. And so when we receive the bread and the cup this morning, these symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that keep us in eternal life, may our amen be our willingness to say yes to the invitation to enter the door that leads to the kingdom of God.